Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the program. Tonight, my special guest is the phenomenally talented Jessica Ginya Simon. I've heard Jessica share her work on many occasions, and she's the perfect person to help us continue our Women's History Month celebration. Hello, Jessica. How are you tonight? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you so much. I am, I am so glad that you're with me. Let's begin this journey, okay? Mm-hmm. What is poetry to you? Well, it's a good question. Um, you know, as Wordsworth said, it's the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings, and I like that, but, uh, but I also think Lee Young Lee uh, said that it's making the invisible visible and vice versa. Um, you know, Damali Ayo, who is a, a wonderful woman, uh, feminist artist, uh, said art should make you think and feel. It doesn't have to match your couch. So, you know, it's kind of a combination of all of those things. I think it's intentional language uh, put together intentionally to make sense of the world. Wow. Yeah. Very nice. It doesn't have to match your couch. That's a powerful <laughs> statement. That's a powerful <laughs> statement. <laughs> Why do you think poetry is important, Jessica? Well, poetry is important for different people for different reasons. For me, it was a healing tool. It can be that for people. It can also help us make meaning of the world's mystery, of the beauty of ideas. Um, it is something, you know, I think Lee Young Lee does get it right. It, it helps us make indescribable, invisible comprehensible things, knowable somehow, to capture the unknowable, to make meaning. Um, and I think, you know, that is something that we are all trying to do on a daily basis. To capture the unknowable. Again, mm-hmm. another profound statement. I like that so much. <laughs> and I think you're right. We are attempting to do that on a daily basis to understand what is out there. Wow. Please share a poem. Okay. All right. Well, this one is called Towards the Sun, and um, I wrote it many years ago, but it's kind of evolved, you know, as I said, trying to make meaning of things. And this was originally about a recurring dream that I had, and it turned into um, to this poem, Towards the Sun. The little girl holds a yellow daisy in a grassy pasture, Shoulders hunched, looking down. She paces back and forth, never stops to look up. Her arms swinging as she steps and turns. It is a cruel pushing game she plays, back and forth searching for the right flower. The one that will tell her the right way to go. The one that will show her who to love. The one that will whisper she is enough the one that will teach her how to sit down in the grass panting where stalks reach above her knees and ants crawl up her dress, the flower that opens wide to fill her nose with what turns towards the sun. Think about your body of work. What are some of the predominant things? Yeah, so the natural world has always been and will always be part of my work. But I think in different seasons of my life, I've written more about different themes, whether that is women-centered themes, feminist themes. You know, I wrote a lot of political political poems when I was a teenager and I was performing as part of a slam team. And, you know, you write 
they say write what you know. So, you know, as I grew up and experienced things like grief and love and death, I could write about those things as well. A constant is nature. Also Jewish themes, religious themes, um, things in the domestic world, you know, just the everyday things. Um, and yeah, I mean, it depends. And yeah, those are the common themes. All right, very nice. In terms of those things, is they one of those things that the majority of your work falls under that particular category, or it is kind of just dispersed like you shared? Um, I don't think the I don't think my work falls under any particular one category in terms of object. I think, like I said in the beginning, it's searching for meaning. Now, the way that I would search for meaning is through the things that I do know to be true, which may be mm. doing, you know, which may be something like the dishes or the tree outside my window or the birds that I see on a walk or something that I feel for my spouse. You know, I'm not, um, these are only, these are the things by which I can make meaning. And so I have to use them to write my poetry. Mm. How does a poem begin for you, with an image, a form, or an idea? Hmm. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes it's actually none of those things. It's it's like a phrase. It's um it's a hook. It's almost I don't know. I think sometimes people who who rhyme who write songs and things like a line, um, something that comes to me like that. And, um, but also a feeling, right? Like a built up feeling. So in that way, I identify with what Wordsworth says, this overwhelming outpouring of feeling. And that, that's when the poem just kind of comes out of you, right? But then there's also the sort of really um, poems that you have to try really hard on that are more like squeezing juice out of a orange. So you may have the ideas that are below the surface and you have to sort of squeeze it out of you. And those are different kinds of poems. I like to say there are loud poems and there are quiet poems. And, you know, th those poems, those different kinds of poems come from different places, come from different instincts, from different ideas, from different feelings, from different uh, phrases and words. Does that make sense? Yes, and, and, and as I sit here, I'm thinking I could listen to Jessica talk all night because to me, <laughs> you epitomize what I view as being a poet's poet. Um, I've heard that before. <laughs> have you heard that before? I have, yeah. yeah. Well, what did you make of that? What was your meaning making around a statement like that? Well, I, I led a lot of poetry workshops when I was in high school and college. Um, and, you know, I went to like writing camp, you know, I just, I was, I love being around other um, writers at a certain time. Um, and I loved um, thinking about what it meant to be in community with other writers. Now that was challenged for me in undergraduate school with some, something that I heard actually another guest of yours talk about, which is sort of the backlash on some of the spoken word and the ideas yes. of poetry as performance or poetry as spoken word. Um, there was this, um, subtle and at times not so subtle sort of backlash against that at the time. And I didn't know how to make sense of it at the time. I think it's really cover, uh, you know, colored by an ivory tower versus street. There's racial elements to that. There's, you know, there's education class elements to that, but I didn't have the, I didn't have the words at the time to make sense of it, but it was, it really, really, um, put a damper on my <laughs> rain. It was rain on my parade, but, um, but right. yeah, you know, when I was leading workshops and things like that, um, people would say, you know, you're a poet's poet. Oh, wow. Very nice. Well, I agree 100%. You know, all great writers have great writing influences. Who are some of yours and what makes them great in your eyes? 
so many to choose from, but, um, you know, I'm really lucky and grateful to be doing the Marge Piercy Poetry Intensive this June. And it's a real dream for me to study with Marge Piercy, who routinely the needle between politics, uh, religion, personal, um, you know, just the being a, a woman, a Jew, um, you know, a person with political <laughs> leanings that embody, are, you know, can be in poetry. And I really love how she talks about sort of the ways in which we have, you know, certain aspects of the poetry world have sort of discounted overtly po political poems. But at the same time, my other sensibility is with, you know, Gwendolyn Brooks or Robert Frost, just the rhymers, like the people who would do these sort of very quiet, reserved, more rhyming poems that were really big on craft, really shaped beautifully, things that were songs in your head. Allen Ginsberg and, you know, Nikki Giovanni really spoke to me by the way that they would bring poems that could live in your ear just really haunt your dreams, just really you could remember them like song lyrics, but also they would live and they would embody um, poetry in a way that was so useful to me, that was uh, really helped me, you know, at different times in my life, as did Adrian Rich and Mary Oliver and Yehuda Amichai and just all of these poets, again, they helped me, they helped me to understand something about myself or about the world different points in time, something about life, but also stylistically, they had different things to offer. Linda Pastan also made an influence on me. Wow. Please share another poem. Okay. Uh, this one's called Third Viewing of Two Fridas with Philadelphia Museum of Art. And this is about um, a painting Frida Kahlo did called Two Fridas, which if you've ever seen it, is basically two versions of herself um, holding hands, which I talk about in the poem. I guess it's an ekphrastic poem. Third viewing of Two Fridas, Philadelphia Museum of Art. You worked with organs because your frames were all cracked. Look how a vein sweeps over your shoulder like a shawl. The heart exists outside yourself like a cloud you could watch float by. You hold your own hand, your organs inside out and flushed, red, wet, and beating, the parts that worked and fed you, the parts that bleed and love. What use are bones anyway but to house life that beats between the bars? Your bars were broken and you beat right into the mirror onto the canvas for all to see. Trivial, some would say, a woman alone in pain paints herself. Trivial, a woman alone in pain. Trivial, a woman alone with her organs and bones alive and beating on pages. Frida, even as your body raged, your bones twisted, your womb collapsed into blood rivers, you paint for yourself a dress of stained linen next to a more innocent you. She offered, and you took your own hand as she pinched to stop the bleeding. Thanks. How do you follow that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so powerful. What can I say? But this, what was an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power? An early experience. And do you come from a literary background? That's another question. What do you mean by that, a literary background? Whether your family were writers, that type thing. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, and you said when I first realized that poems had power? Yes. That's so difficult. When did I first realize? I mean, I'm just going to answer the question just sort of okay. with it. But I mean, I mean, my my family were not, you know, like, uh, create, we're not poets or creative writers who published poems, but they certainly are writers. My, my dad uh, taught me a lot about how to write essays, how to write, um, how to use language 
my grandmother wrote poems. My grandfather wrote poems on my, um, on my father's side and um, lots of musicians. Um, again, lots of people who didn't, didn't do these, didn't do art for a living, always had to make a living, but um, these creative outlets were always part, were, were in existence in the family for sure. But um, no, not, not a literary family in that sense, not a, not a, um, but, um, but I certainly learned a lot from all of them and I carry them with me. Um, Mm -hmm. When did I figure out a poem had power? I mean, I started writing poetry when I was seven years old. And I think my parents got me a book about the seasons. I didn't realize what I was reading, but there's poems in there by Lucille Clifton and Gwendolyn Brooks and Sarah Teasdale and all these, these, these little poems about the seasons, but they just, they spoke to me so much and they made me feel something so powerful that I knew that poetry meant something to me. Now, when did I realize that poetry could mean something to someone else? When did I realize that I could, that my poem could influence someone else. I think it sort of took on a different meaning when I was 17 and I competed in the National Poetry Youth Slam uh, with a poem about living in the suburbs and sort of the way that the suburbs are not what they seem and people sort of put them on a pedestal and think they're perfect and it wasn't like that. And I, you know, I saw teenagers all around me who were struggling and that was the first time that I could perform poem, even if everybody in the room didn't, even if they were from different backgrounds than me, even if they were city people and I was a suburban kid, or if I was a white girl and I was the only white girl in the room, you know, I mean, or only Jewish person or something that I could convey something deeper than surface level to a group of people and make them feel something that I had felt to reveal something, that exchange that is so magical, that is really a higher, a higher power, a higher form of conversation, a higher form of exchange. And it, it, that changed my life. Being on that team changed my life. Wow. Please share another poem. I mean, I am just so <laughs> impressed. <laughs> I am so impressed with you. I really, really am. <laughs> really? I feel I like mean, I'm. You're a doctor. Yes. You're, you're a I always man. don't believe the hype. Don't believe the hype. <laughs> I feel like I'm sitting in one of your classes, just soaking in all this knowledge, and it really feels good. It really Aww. feels good. I want you to know that. <laughs> it really does. Thank <laughs> I want to take one of your one of your classes. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> please share another poem, Jessica, please. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, let's see. Oh my God. How do I follow that? Um, okay. Let's do a little, a little fun form poem. This is uh, speaking of influences. Um, Michelle Braffman, who runs a workshop, a poetry workshop in this area, in the DC area that I, that I go to, she challenged us to do something called the golden shovel form. Yes. And this was created by Terrence Hayes in honor of Gwendolyn Brooks and her, uh, we real cool poem. And you already know this, but for the listeners, perhaps take a line from a poem you admire, you use each word as an end word in your poem and you keep the end words in order and you give credit to the original person. And this is a, this poem is about me and about, you know, my coming of age, but it's also honoring uh, Marge Piercy, whose uh, poem, The Art of Blessing the Day, I quote, and Gwendolyn Brooks as well, due to the form, but also a Gwend- um, as a poet who I love. I met Gwendolyn in high school, where she taught me to jazz June. I researched the oeuvre of her poetry on microfiche card catalogs, but most of all, her poems. The art in the rhymes, always the rhymes to me. A soothing balm on such a nervous girl of 17. Before I found ways to perform the rhymes out loud for applause. A blessing that bloomed me into the next version of myself I would become. The radical feminist art student on her college campus filled her day learning difference in any culture but her own. 
that was already the deal breaker. Show me who I am by looking at who I am not. The art of self-definition by process of elimination. I am not you, so I am me. A wide-eyed version of my years later, not yet tasted grief. I was a lamb in that way. The blessing of innocence, not carefree, never. Always worried the other shoe would drop. Brain set like a tripwire, everything a trap. Tragedy around the corner. The day is brightest at the dawn and dusk. Crepuscular time still hold the certainty of beauty in the sunrise and sun setting. Not yet the dark unknown of night. The art of reciting a prayer over the hum of my brain. None of my blessings counted yet where I have kindness and friendship at the end of the day. Thank you. <laughs> you know, many people believe that poetry is about emotion, allowing oneself to vent, to get it out of the system. Do you think someone can be called a poet if they don't feel strong emotions? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I'm not going to profess to determine who gets to be a poet. That would be all ridiculous. Right. Um, I think that I relate and appreciate um, poems that are not devoid of emotion that do convey or have emotion. But that being said, there's plenty of poems that can make you feel something by telling a story, narrative poems or, you know, illustrative illustrative poems but you know I love I, I also song poems just rhyme poems you know poems that are there for the music of it I think there's value in those poems too something that that they give me um sometimes it's just the art of putting the words together in a way that explains or creates something else with using language, but similar that a song can create something else or a painting can just offer a new way to look at something. So I don't, I don't think that I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, you know, this, this makes a poem. This doesn't make a poem. I'm more democratic than that in terms of poetry. <laughs> All right. Very nice. Let's take a brief break and we'll be right back. Anthony Ingram. I am here with, as I said earlier, the phenomenal Jessica Ginya Simon. Jessica, please share another poem. Okay. Um, sure. So this one is called Built of All I Shape and Name. And it's an important poem to me. Um, it's about myself and becoming an adult and perseverance, but it's also about my mother and my mother's mother, my family, actually my namesake. So um, all of those things are in it, but I think it's kind of a manifesto in a way too. Built of all I shape and name. The gifts my mother gave me books on shelves, a garden watered. These are treasures, but just as worthy was the dirt beneath that fertile ground. She tried to bury it, but at 33, I prune and water those lush leafy potted plants, smelling of girlhood dreams. 
I sit content in my own home, built of all I shape and name. The gift my mother tried to give me, her American child, was silence. Born to Holocaust survivor parents who relived their deaths over and over after war failed to kill them. These parents urged my mother to be dutiful daughter, woman, wife, do not marry for love, but whoever asks you first. Unsaid, those you love too easily die. Do not swim or ride a bike. Life is not amusement. For them, clouds were not clouds, but smoke. My middle namesake, Genya, called my mother at college again to threaten to jump off the balcony, asked her to come back home. Instead, my mother finished her test first with a perfect score, took the full scholarship to Pittsburgh, PA, moved to a new home, fell in love with my American father and geometry, built stability out of steel and concrete, beams and foundations, stones immovable. On a single family home basement drafting table, my mother finds her instruments, pencil, compass, three-sided ruler. She draws to build. My mother architect designs perfect solid structures that withstand. Perhaps my mother thought silence would stop the flow of fear to amniotic womb. For years, it worked. I slept peaceful sleep, wrote poems to birds chirping in treetops, believed my arms, wings ready to fly. I could not fall until I did. My own nest took many years to build, decades to weave together the question I needed to ask and answer. Why did my skin crawl with fear? I carried carefully chosen twigs of inexplicable superstitions in my maw, found colorful scraps crawling on hands and knees amidst weeds, pricked my fingers on evergreen blades hidden in the dead of winter, observed the dandelion in a sidewalk crack, stepped on hundreds of times, grow. Thank you. You know, that particular poem about mothers, your mother, brings up my next question. Your and own it's a question because we're si- Yes, I know. And, yeah, I mean, I want to hear your poem. No, <laughs> I know that's not <laughs> We've already talked about that. <laughs> I'll be writing one. Um, our purpose this month... And it's not, it's not only this month, it's every month, it's to celebrate women. What does it mean to be a woman in the field of poetry? What does that mean to you? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, I, I, because I'm not uh, immersed in the quote-unquote poetry world, I really defer to people like, actually, I just read an essay by Marge Piercy um, in a book called, what is it called? My Life, My Body, essays about that. And she talks about part of the struggle being a woman writer, um, you know, in a field, especially in academia, where that's, you know, there are, you know, it's not like, Poetry is not immune to patriarchy, so <laughs> that's going mm-hmm. to be present in, in every part of life, uh, poetry and writing um, as well. I think that's all I'm going to say about that topic. You think it's all you're going to say? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I think so because, yeah, I don't, I don't really – I don't know how to speak to um, – there's just so many different sort of subcultures of poetry – that the, Mm -hmm. you know, gender will interact differently with each of the different ones. We could probably stay on that topic all evening. Yeah, we could. could (laughs) For the sake of time, we'll keep moving on. But uh, again, I just enjoy listening to you talk. (laughs) (laughs) You've got a fan in me. Aww, you got a fan in me. You, you got a fan in me. <laughs> Please share another poem. 
Okay. Well, this speaks to the to the condition. I've got a couple poems that speak to the condition of being, you know, a person with a uterus, you know, female, woman, or woman with a Y or whatever, non-binary, queer, whatever, um, mm-hmm. you know, it to that condition. And I think, of course, these are going to, these issues are going to come up in the professional world, poet, writer, whomever. It's a poem about apologies. And it's called Apology for the I'm Sorry's. I apologize for the I'm sorry's that escape my mouth in advance of saying almost anything. The apology I give because I am the wrong kind of woman, wrong size, wrong sex. I mean, I am short, squat, my belly protrudes over top my jeans. Apologize for a clitoris that feels pleasure when plucked. I apologize for my speech. I'm sorry for my aggressive tone, meaning louder than you, or meaning too confident, or that I believe in what I'm saying. I apologize for my opinions, that I have them in the first place, about most things, that I dare to say them, or argue my rightness and your wrongness, or speak at all in a room full of talking men, or a room full of quiet women. I apologize for my volume being too brash, for my cackle laugh for how I'm dressed in a slogan t-shirt or too short mom jeans or too tight jeans, for my butt not being tight or high enough, for my breasts being different sizes, for the blood falling out of my vagina, for not being dressed up enough, for my hair being too kinky or too curly or straightened or not, for my makeup being applied incorrectly, too little eyeliner, too much foundation, not blended in, not enough rouge or not applied at all, for the hairs on my upper lip which are not blonde, for the stain of chocolate ice cream on my pants, for the chip with salsa I just dropped onto the carpet, for the insult that flew too quickly out of my mouth. I apologize in advance before I say what I think. I apologize in case I say what makes you and the room uncomfortable. I apologize for the truth I feel compelled to speak. I apologize to myself for over apologizing. My God, I am so sorry all the damn time for what I feel, for what I do not feel. How the hell did I learn to give a fuck so often? I am so good at feeling so bad. Learned so young to be a good girl, to feel sorry for being bad. Being bad is one who does not follow rules. I follow them. What in a day full of apologies can an apology even mean? Thanks. Wow. You shared that work with such conviction what is the relationship between your speaking voice and your written voice? You know, that question is uh, one that I've thought so much about that I wrote an entire undergraduate honors thesis about it. Oh, did you really? <laughs> oh! Yeah. I did a study. I did a survey. I went to the New York and Poetry Cafe, and I interviewed poets standing out on the street. I I mentioned, I alluded to, you know, I started writing poems when I was seven. I didn't perform them until I, I didn't perform them or read them out loud to an audience until I was older, a teenager, which changed my life. And I went to, I went to undergraduate school and studied with writers again. But at the time where I went, there weren't really spoken word poets in the poetry department. There were spoken word poets in the literature department or other departments. But the poetry professors, in a sense, were, you know, not really that interested spoken word, which was a complete and utter deviation from this experience that had just changed my life. So I was so, um, I was so, there was so much dissonance with that. And I knew that there was so much power in the spoken word that I studied it. You know, I studied the black arts movement. I studied the slam poets and the beats, the beats and the beat movement. I studied the bards and Homer and, you know, whatever, the biblical times when poetry, biblical poetry is, you know, was originally an oral tradition. You know, everything from, I knew where that came from. I wanted to know where that came from because I wanted to be able to say to those who felt that spoken word poetry somehow wasn't poetry, it was songs, it was something else, you know, that 
that if it rhymes too much or if it's not um, abstract enough, that somehow it was lower art form or that it wasn't fitting in modern poetry at all. And I knew that to be untrue. And yet, as I got older, I did find that certain poems lend themselves to being spoken out loud, that they have a different impact that I can, with my cadence, with volume, with all the things that I learned to do in Poetry Slam from my amazing teachers like Lisa Pegram and John Murillo and all my fellow slam poets, um, you know, I could use those to turn a poet poem into something living, something different, something mm. that could make a difference by the way that I said it and spoke it out loud. And yet I wanted to share my poems, not just with performing, but, but on the page as well. And so I found certain poems that really were quieter poems that really worked better on the page. And so, yeah, I, I, I say all of that to mean that I don't, I think I could look at a specific poem and tell you what would work better spoken and what would work better on the page and written. But um, I believe there is, they're absolutely both poems and incredible poems that do both things. Mm. Did you develop a preference? Do you have a preference now for either of the two? That's another good question. You know, I forget, I think, you know, as you try to do adulthood, you know, and you work, you know, mm -hmm. and I, you know, you have to, yeah, I can't always be at a poetry workshop or performing a poem or I've had trouble memorizing poems as I get older. Or I don't have the time that I think I learned to adapt to be, to writing more poems that are really for the page. They're quieter poems. But I will say that something always in my heart is, you know, leans towards the rhyme, towards lyric, towards the spoke, the, the oral tradition, something about speaking the poem out loud, mm -hmm. at least when I deliver it, is really an incredible transform, transformative experience mm -hmm. that I think is precious precious to me you know i as a performance poet spoken with artists myself that word transformative is so huge i, I love that word hmm. it, it holds so much power just to think about being able to transform oneself from i'm gonna say where you start to where you're going to where you end i, I don't know where i'm going with all this but i just love that particular word and thank you for using it tonight yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I've heard you read too. And I think there is something so powerful in that authentic exchange. I'm going to give you a little philosophy. There's a Jewish philosopher named Martin Buber. Who yes. Said that there's an I-thou relationship. There's an I-it relationship and an I-thou relationship. And I understood that to mean that I-thou is an authentic exchange between two people who are engaging with like the God in themselves and the God in the other person, or just the authentic exchange of something that is deeply human. And that, I think that also describes, you know, when you are reaching a kind of exchange that you say is tra transformative, that is really turning communication into something else that, that, mm. that's an I bow. Wow. You are so deep. You are so deep. I love it. I love it. Oh, I love it. On a more serious note, when everything is serious, there is so much, Jessica, that is happening in our world. So much is happening locally, nationally, internationally, so much. What do you view as being the role of a poet in modern-day society? Oh, God. Is that my last question? Are you really going to do No. No. <laughs> no. We're just getting started, sister. We're just getting oh, started. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Got it. Well, you know, 
So like I said, I did an undergraduate thesis about poetry, which within the context of the United States. But I'll tell you, yes. I studied in Jerusalem for a year in Israel, and I actually once got in trouble for a poem that I read. And, you know, because it was political, it was politically on the left about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And as much as I was like trying to figure out why I was getting in trouble for something that I said in a poem, I was delighted that a poem could get me in trouble. Like, mm. I, you know, that it could be powerful enough that something that you said in words could, um, you know, the way that you said it or what you said, um, an idea, not just using an expletive word or that, um, or just using something for shock value, but so, an idea that you expressed in words, intentional words could, um, you know, cause someone to, to want to, um, you know, do something, whether that is take action or whether it's silence it or whether it's spread that message, right? And I think in other countries, there have been, you know, poets that have served that purpose. Um, and they have happened in the United States as well. The Black Arts Movement is a perfect example of poets who are responding, who are fueling a movement. The beat, the beat, also um, somewhat, although it's different kinds of movement. But um, you know, the role of poetry, as I said in the beginning, is to make meaning, to make sense, to make something visible that is invisible. And when you have a chaotic world, to poets, to explain it to us, to get some truth out of something that is incomprehensible during a pandemic a lot of people would share poems because in times of grief what do you want you want a poem you want a poem for that funeral a poem for that joyful birth of a baby you want a poem for this a poem for that a love poem we reach for these poems to explain um something that we cannot otherwise express and so that will always be relevant that will always be needed it will always be necessary um and the role the poet plays though in is is different i think in different time periods i'd be curious what a ukrainian poet would do now yes. i'm sure there are ukrainian poets that are helping you know that you know and different different in different time periods poets have been political figures they've been um Doctors and teachers, you know, lots of, they've served many different types of roles. I mean, there are professional poets now, and there were bards, people who performed for the kings, you know, and things, people who were professional artists as well. But they were also, you know, every other part of society. Mm. Sorry, that was a little rambling. I, no, see, I no, apologize no. Was... again. I just apologize <laughs> again. Don't apologize. <laughs> don't apologize, please. And after your apologize poem, don't ever apologize again to anyone. All right. Please share another piece with us tonight. Okay. Um, evil Eye. A bee stung the finger right above the wedding ring she put there five years ago. My first thought was this was an omen, bad luck. Could hear my grandmother spit three times, worry like my own two hands, stronger than the stinger is the buzz. The stories I tell myself are not the ones I most need to hear. There I was tossing crumbs, my sins into Rock Creek for Toshley when it found me and stung. A friend had just revealed she was pregnant, due in a few months. Another told me bread upsets duck stomachs, disturbs the ecosystem, suggested I throw sticks and stones instead. Seems counterproductive as far as rituals go, and what of my stomach or wounds? The finger swells a pinpointed pain. I swat the yellow and black stripes away, pull the finger out. My friends open their purses, pockets, withdraw pills, ointments, essential oils. One sees my eyes full of fear, reassures me, bees make honey, you know. In other words, pain, but sweetness too. That's the prayer I whisper into my womb to coax it into motherhood. Months of discomfort will be worth it. The prods and pricks, what's a little sting? 
my pregnancy invisible to all except it lasted seven weeks. I saw a yolk sac tucked into a uterine lining, a promising crown rump length float on a screen, give way to no heartbeat. Empty explanations fail to plug holes that continue to leak. We only speak of births or abortions, not the panoply of ways a woman can house all the life and death in between. The half-life, the almost words she also carries. I run a bit of water into a dish, mix baking soda into a paste to ease the swollen finger. It will heal. Thanks. Writers and poets write for a myriad of reasons. Some write primarily to speak a message to their audience. Others write because to stay silent is not an option. Why do you write, Jessica? Yeah. Um, so I write to make sense of the world, to make meaning, as I said. Mm-hmm. But um, yes. I also believe that silence is not an option. I don't, I, I do social justice work and activism because I believe that is necessary and the action is necessary in addition to writing. Um, but I also write because it helps me live. It helps me heal. It helps me deal with the world. Um, I'd be lying to say, I, I, but I also write to be useful. I know it's funny, but I would write about writing useful poetry. I wanted poetry that would help people understand something better themselves. I think it was mm-hmm. that exchange. I write poetry as a means of making meaning and helping others to make meaning or to connect, to, to, to create community. But also, I mean, I write social change. I guess you could call them social change poems in the sense that I will write things that other people perhaps won't say. Mm-hmm. I want to illuminate something about the human condition. That's why any writer writes. But they also write for themselves. They write because they feel compelled to write. I write because someone taught me to write. I write because somebody helped me use poetry as a tool to express myself. And I found that tool to be a helpful thing in my life, if at times torturous or cursed. Yes. But also, yes. <laughs> but something that was ultimately um, a positive, healing, helpful tool. Well, what do you view as being the measure of success as a poet? What's a measure of success? Oh, that's so difficult. You know, part of me wants to, part of me really yearns for publication, for being known, to share my poetry with a wider audience, to, you know, all those outward successes that um, one would feel would mean a successful poetry or writing career. Um, But, and I think part of me still really clings to that and probably believes it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that is part of that sort of exchange. Some people do write poems just for themselves. I'm not, I don't, some of my poems are just for me, but a lot of them are not. They're really for a reader, right? And so what would a successful poet be? I know I'm, I'm not sure, you know, um, I think if you get at something, you know, even if you write a poem that you, that you perform once that makes someone in the audience feel like they can, like it expresses something that they needed to hear, something that they needed to get by, to feel, to understand something. I do think that that is a success. I don't know if that makes for a successful career as a poet, but I think you have succeeded in that moment in using the tool. Yes. Please share another poem. Okay. Okay. (laughs) This is called Make Me Like the Crocus, the Daffodil, the Cherry Blossom. I wish to be open like the crocus. First in spring, 
in the right sun and temperature. Or no, I wish to be more like the daffodil. She may wilt briefly, a curtsy before the big reveal, but on a cold spring day, she is canary yellow, collar encircled trumpet, full-throated, upright, proud. I'll be like that. Or no, I'll be like the cherry blossoms. Yes, they have it right. They do not open until ready. Buds first, red and plucky. Overnight, they bust out pink pom-poms like little cheerleaders or firework clusters, pink and white for a week or two, then to lush green. But here I stand, bent over the bathroom sink, naked, heads in my head in my hands, in front of a shower fogged mirror, forearms covering my my nipples in the mirror image, a lavender mud mask smeared across my face to rinse away toxins. I hope to drain myself of sorrow and dead things, empty myself of any blood I do not need, anything that does not live or help me live. Unsheath my body of unnecessary skin. Shed what I can to be new, new as I can be now, with decades done. Free me of all coats, cloaks, coverings. Free me of all pouches or pockets. Free me of hidden things, of secrets. Free me of sandbags of worry pressed against future floods. Free me from the future, the past, from expectation, Free me from shoulds, from woods, from perfect. Free me from visions of could-have-beens, would-have-beens. Free me of any tense but the present. Free me to pulse without listening for the hiccup. Free me, damn it, from physical time. Free me of any and all I do not need. Make me like the crocus, the daffodil, the cherry blossom. Thank you. Superb. You know, some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. Once it's out there, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it, while others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on it, Jessica? How do you edit? <laughs> a true poet-poet question, right? Poetry poet. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I, um, it's it's an interesting question, and I think um, – You know, I write longhand. I think my best poems mm. are, I write longhand and then I transcribe, which takes time. And I think that was just because I started writing poetry longhand and then computers came. And so I don't think the same way on a computer. I've tried mm-hmm. to write on the computer, but the poems, the best poems don't come that way. However, I do think editing can make a poem better. And it often, and it for the most part does. Someone said that poems aren't finished, they're abandoned. And I do kind wow. of believe that. Yeah. Um, my friend is a fiction writer, kind of was like, I know when a, a story is done. And I was like, I never really know when a poem, a poem is never quite done. Um, editing for me is very difficult. It's painstaking. It's slow. It's frustrating. Sometimes I like it after I edit it. Sometimes I feel like it lost its soul. You know, and I like to think of it, I like to think of it as a chiseling process, more like a sculpture that makes it seem to me like a more positive process than sort of Mm -hmm. putting the poem through a meat grinder and making it into a clean, nice product. You know, I don't want to think about it like that. Um, But yeah, I I think it can, it can go both ways, you know. I've had poems that I thought I killed by editing. I have so many versions, so many poems that it's just, you know, and sometimes I feel like the poem just comes out so quickly and so intensely and that's rare, but sometimes that is the way like that, that is, you have to really protect that original um, spark that was in the poem. Do you (laughs) think you were meant to be a poet? Meant to be a poet? Yes. Um, or let me ask this question. Do you live your life like it's a poem? I don't think I live my life like it's a poem, but I do live as a poet. You know, I do think I ha- I have an old soul for what it's worth. I think I move through the world with a kind of wonder that upon reading about other poets and their lives feels familiar to me. 
like wh why some people decided to become poets um, that they they found something in words and the use of words that they you know loved and also that they found something so moving in the world or their head was in the clouds so much or their dreamers that they needed to express it and if you don't express it and you're this kind of intense person you know it doesn't turn into something good so i, I think poetry was a way to turn to create this sort of intensity into something beautiful mm. um so i think it was a learned skill i don't think, think right. i don't i don't i don't believe in you know this person was born a genius you know i'm sure you're mm -hmm. born with certain gifts and talents and and yes some of those are you know some parts of those can be uh nature versus nurture but i think ultimately you're shaped by your experiences and the people around you that sort of help you turn those gifts into something positive, into something that's art. Um, and I'm great, so grateful to every, to everybody, to my, to my parents, to my poetry teachers, to everybody who helped give me this tool, this talent, this, um, this expressive uh, gift, this way to express my intense way of experiencing the world. Wow, very nice. Nicely stated. We have time for one more poem. Please favor us again. Let's see. It's a lot of pressure, Michael. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, let's see. Let's see. Which one? All right, I'll do a love poem. Carry All right. Out. This is called Layover Story, or Why I, Buy, Why I Bought You Candied Pecans at Chicago <laughs> O'Hare Airport. <laughs> <laughs> because you aren't here to see the snow pelt the airplane window as we descend, turbulence tossing the fuselage like the hurricane Ocean City ride you rode with my wide-eyed seven-year-old nephew. I grip both armrests white knuckle, close my eyes to picture the two of us on a beach in Tulum. You have a relentless sweet tooth. All candy is fair game. So when I see nuts on Clark in a crowded terminal filled with weathered, delayed passengers, I get in line. I see a gaggle of ecstatic teenage girls in sweatpants and strappy tank tops. The sight gives me visceral, physical memory of my high school body, taught, untested. I smell their cheap body wash, hormones, and 17 magazine unrequited love dreams. They huddle in proximity of their kind, all suitcases alike, long, smooth, non-gray hair, somehow not in the way of their vision. Our love, my love, is cooler, tested, chosen, requited, more than once, wink, wink. And yet, I remind myself of days when an offering was not a sure thing to be welcomed or received. I stand in line for almond drizzle, caramel popcorn, candied pecans, and almonds. Such sweet small offerings I can carry on, bring home to you, my love, with a heart on edge, hoping you accept the popcorn, candy nuts, and me as we are when I return. Thank you. Mm. Wow. How can listeners stay in touch with you, Jessica? How can they stay in touch? <laughs> Um, well, I um, have some individual poems that are published, and I perform at various, you know, DC readings, and I am trying to publish my first collection of poems, a chapbook or a uh, manuscript. So if you have a way to do that, then be in touch with me. Um, I'll give you my, my email on the website or my, my phone number, but... Um, yeah, I um, I hope to to be in touch and to be a public uh, performing poet, uh, sharing my work for a lot of time to come. Oh wow, very nice. I think we're gonna close now, but I think you are magnificent. 
And there is nothing in my mind that you can't do when it comes to poetry. I look to see your name in light, to be quite honest. Um, Thank you. I am so glad that you said yes to my invitation to being on my show. I really am. I'm so grateful. I'm grateful for you. I learned so much. I just think you're just top notch. (laughs) So, (laughs) until I see you again, hopefully next month, Mm -hmm. I want to say to our listening audience this has been truly a treat tonight to have Jessica with us. I want to thank all of you for listening as you do every week. And as I share every week, Let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land and be safe out there. Take care of each other. We're living in tough times. Here's a virtual hug from me. Good night, everybody. Take care, Jessica. Thank you. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.